The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at The Spectator. On this podcast, I've been exploring freedom of speech and taboo topics in the creative industry. Well, it seems to me there is no more totemic and taboo a topic than the trans debate. J.K. Rowling, the world's most famous author, constantly receiving death threats for her gender-critical opinions. Graham Linehan, creator of the IT crowd, and Father Ted, name, but a little bit of his work has had his creative career completely unravel. Even this last month, we had Christian Henson, who's the co-founder of Spitfire Audio, a, a music studio that creates uh, audio for software, amongst other things, was suspended for expressing gender-critical opinions on his Twitter. And even more recently, the keyboard player from Brit award-winning band Elbow, Craig Potter, vanished from Twitter after expressing concern for what was happening to children and, again, expressing gender-critical opinions. So, to explore the trans issue, I am joined by Britain Editor and Economist and author of Trans, Helen Joyce. Helen, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me in. So, hardball question to start off. Is a trans woman a woman? No, of course not. We all know what woman means. Woman means that you were conceived female, you got born and you grew up. You didn't die before you grew up. That's the only criterion for being a woman. Okay. So then, what is all the fuss about? Well, some people would like to redefine the words man and woman to mean, well, I don't know quite what they think they mean because I've spent years thinking about it and I can't make it work. Maybe social roles. Maybe they think there are social roles, man and woman, mm-hmm. and that a man can play the social role of a woman. Mm-hmm. I've never heard anything more sexist in my life. I don't think that I play the social role of a woman. I just think I am a woman, and everything mm-hmm. I do is a thing that a woman does, just by definition. And I've done some very manly things in my life. I have a PhD in mathematics, for example. I'm also a mother. I don't think that makes me some mixture of masculine and feminine. I think I'm just a woman who you know, did some relatively unconventional things Mm -hmm. as well as some quite conventional things. Some people want to be the opposite sex. And I think that a lot of this started by a misplaced kindness, the desire to accommodate people. And when there were very few of them, that maybe didn't seem like such a big deal. Like, we don't worry about witness protection, you know, and we falsify all sorts of things for people in witness protection, but they're just such a tiny number and there's a reason to do it. So when there were a very, 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 very tiny number of people who wanted to have surgery and try and pass as the opposite sex, doesn't matter. But now we're in a situation where several percent of young people say that they are not identifying within the gender binary or that they're trans or they're non-binary or they're gender fluid. And and then they want to move around in a world that does have certain things separated by sex. Uh Then it is a problem, you know, that a man just says, I feel like a woman today, I'm going into the women's toilets. I mean, Eddie Izzard now uses the women's toilets. Does he? He does, yeah. Are you worried about that? Does that concern you? Of course. It's not private. I don't think any men should be in the women's toilets. I don't care if they're putting on lipstick or a skirt. They still shouldn't be in the women's toilets. Part of this, it seems to me, about definition of words, and one word that has many definitions is gender. And I want to understand 
where the word gender comes from and why it's being differentiated from sex. Now, I think I have the answer to this, but perhaps, and I think you express this very well and articulate this in your in your book, but perhaps you can break this down, the difference between sex and gender. So sex is reproductive roles, and that doesn't mean that you're fertile, it doesn't mean you've actually been a parent, it doesn't mean that you know you're still at the fertile point of your life or anything, but it's a body plan. It's a body plan that was designed by evolution to support either the male or female role in reproduction. All mammals come in male and female. Most plants and animals do too. Only like, you know, little single-celled organisms that just split don't. And male means that the whole organism or the body part was created in such a way, like by evolution, that it supports the production of small motile gametes that we call sperm in humans. And female means it's eggs. And those are two reproductive strategies, and those things shape your whole body. Like everything in a man's body and everything in a woman's body has been optimised by evolution to support those two reproductive roles. So um, where did gender come from then? Well, the word used to mean just a grammatical thing. Like, you know, gender was in grammar, whether it was a masculine or feminine word. And I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean to do with male and female. Like the word for girl in German is a masculine word. Mm-hmm. In Ireland, the same with Colleen, the word for... Girl is a, I think it's neuter, it's not female anyway. And then it got sort of co-opted into meaning these social roles and the way we're socialised into being masculine or feminine. But this is a co-option by... By feminists. And they were, they were trying to separate out the idea that, you know, a woman had to be feminine. In the famous phrase of Simone de Beauvoir, she said, uh, one's not born but becomes a woman. Mm-hmm. And she didn't mean that a man can become a woman. She meant that girls, female children, are socialised into being women. That you're not able to just grow up and be yourself. You're forced into, you know, beauty rituals, subservience you know, the mirror to men, that sort of thing. And there's an awful lot of truth to that. And of course, there's an equivalent process of socialisation for boys and men. You don't cry, be tough, you know, don't show if you feel pain, be ready to fight, those sorts of things. And they're not totally divorced from biological reality, these roles. They're not totally divorced? No, of course not, because, I mean, you know... I would say they're not at all divorced. No, some of them are. I mean, things like which colour is a boy colour or a girl colour. That's just arbitrary. Right. You know, so some things about gender are quite arbitrary. The fact that dancing in our culture is seen as a feminine thing to do. In many cultures, it's done exclusively by men. Uh So some gender things are absolutely impositions. And the idea that, you know, that women are there to reflect back the man. Believe you me, it doesn't look like that from this side. But that is a gendered expectation. Mm -hmm. So for second wave feminists, I think they went too far in saying that it was all socialisation, sure. But a lot of it is, and it's very interesting and productive to look and see which bits are actually tied to how people are, how we behave towards people who are gender non-conforming. Because even the bits that are connected with our being male or female, some people are very, very, very atypical for their sex. And how good are we at accommodating those people? You know, if you're a very flamboyant, somewhat flaming gay man, how do you fit into your culture? If you're super butch lesbian, how do you fit into your culture? You know, all very interesting. Mm -hmm. Not what I was doing, I have to say, but... You know, I can see that it's interesting. But then it became this idea of gender identity, which was something more inner, like an essence. And it's odd that this happened, because the person who's cited most often, Judith Butler, saw it as a performance. She saw it as an extremely external and superficial thing. She said gender is what you do. And she denied any sort of natural substrate to it at all. She just thought that they were the things that got reality because they were done over and over again. Famously, she said that they are um, imitations without originals. 
which is rubbish. What does that mean? Oh, it means that like it's totally arbitrary what men and women do in our culture. Completely arbitrary, but it's just done over and over again. Okay. And that's what made it masculine and feminine. Uh-huh. And she believed that you could disrupt it by drag or by, you know, being deliberately gender non-conforming, by queering the boundaries, this sort of thing. Uh-huh. But somehow she's still cited by people who seem to believe that it's an inner essence. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, the more, I don't know, the more trivial of these people seem to think that it's like a pink brain in a blue body or a blue brain in a pink body. I mean, these are the drawings that used to be done for children yeah. a couple of years ago by the trans lobby groups, like they would literally show a little outline of a child, pink, you know, with a little blue brain, and say this child, you know, has a, a boy gender identity trapped in a girl's body. Yeah. Is this the concept of a sexed soul? Yeah, that's what I've called it. I mean, if you say that, they'll say, no, 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 it's much more subtle than that. But if you look at the teaching materials that are going to schools, that's exactly what they're saying. They're not using the words, but that's what they're saying. So what is a sexed soul? It's... I mean, as soon as you say that a man could be a woman, mm-hmm. either you mean the social roles, so, you mean, if he tarts himself up and wears makeup and high heels uh-huh. and totters around the place saying, yes, sir, he's become a woman. Uh-huh. Or you mean he feels like a woman and that makes him a woman. Uh-huh. Like, there are no other options. So I know there's a, as you cite, the, there's the postmodernist history that's shaped the course of this philosophy. But is there a science to people who have gender dysphoria? What's, what do we understand about that scientifically? So gender dysphoria is the experience of being deeply uncomfortable with the fact of your sex. Hard to imagine, I suppose, unless you've experienced it, so I can't be more precise than that. I mean, the latest iteration of trans ideology doesn't require gender dysphoria for the idea that you're trans. Like, Mm -hmm. it says some people have no gender dysphoria, they just know that they are non-binary, they know that they're members of the opposite sex. So they have left that behind, even. But if we, for a moment, just answer the question, you know, what is gender dysphoria? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're a member of the opposite sex, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, how could it? It just means you're unhappy being the sex you are, in some way. Uh So what's gender dysphoria? It's the next question you might ask yourself. Well, I would say that it's a largely socially created illness. So that's true of most mental conditions, that they are some mixture of a predisposition, life history, but also how society interprets what's happened to you. Uh So if you think of something like anorexia, if you look back through history, there have always been occasional people who have settled on self-starvation as a way to express their discomfort or their, you know, hatred of their lives or as a response to a society they see as just unbearable, you know, but it's rare. Uh And then it sort of became the the done way to express your misery if you were a young American girl, American teenage girl in, say, the 1970s or 80s, but it was still unusual elsewhere. Uh And sociologists of medicine have tracked how the media spread that idea in other cultures and saw the cases of anorexia rise. Yes. Like really rise from almost nothing to very large numbers. So that this is actually something that happened in Hong Kong. Exactly. Right? exactly. So exactly. In, until 1993 or 1994, yes. there were very few cases of anorexia. And they weren't experienced the typical way that we think of anorexia. So the version of anorexia you and I have been taught involves a distorted body image. You know, the, the girl who's starving away still looks in the mirror and sees herself as fat. Mm-hmm. The few kids who were starving themselves in Hong Kong before that period knew perfectly well what size they were. They just tended to say, I, I feel I can't eat, I feel I have a constriction. And when you looked at their back history, it wasn't about, you know, unrealistic images of women in the media or indeed even miserable personal circumstances that had changed recently, like a family divorce or something. They didn't want to live. Yeah. Their lives were completely empty and they didn't want to live, so they starved. Mm-hmm. But they were tiny numbers. 
And then one of these girls died, and she died in a public place on her way to school. So it was very shocking, and it was widely reported, and the media looking for ways to report it. Obviously, you know, you were starting to be able to search for things online. They found American reports of self-starvation, and they interpreted what had happened for the Hong Kong population through that lens. Mm -hmm. And that became the way that Hong Kong girls also expressed their misery. And, and the numbers completely oh, skyrocketed. Oh, yeah, they yeah, went by hundreds very, of times. Very, yeah, right. you know, from like a couple of year to you know, several dozen a week at the same special, mm -hmm. the same specialist, you know? So gender dysphoria, I think, is like that. I think there are rare individuals who spontaneously land on the idea that what's wrong with their lives and what's wrong with them is that they were born in the wrong body or yeah. their wrong sex or they're really meant to be the opposite sex or some version of that. But now that's the narrative for pretty much all disease yes. for children. So we're creating gender dysphoria. Yes, this is something that Carl Jung called a psychic endemic. That's right. And there's a, a superb book by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage, which explores this specific issue and how young girls are getting stuck down YouTube wormholes and it's convincing them that they're not only that they have gender dysphoria, but the, the way to treat the gender dysphoria is to have irreversible treatment. And that will include puberty blockers and surgery. I and cross-sex hormones, testosterone in between the two as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. I really admire Abigail for writing it. And, you know, she wrote it because she wrote one column for the Wall Street Journal on some of these issues and was absolutely astonished by the answers and the response that she got from readers. So lots of people wrote to her, parents saying, please look into this more, write more about this. This has happened to my daughter. I'm told I'm a bigot for saying that, mm -hmm. you know, she wasn't, that I don't believe this nonsense about her really being a boy. And, and she started to look into it more and then realized that nearly every specialist journalist in health or social science or, you know, equality or any of the things you might imagine would look into it have been scared off it by the response. Mm -hmm. So that's why she wrote her book. And I would say even since writing that book, the shape of gender dysphoria has mutated among that group. We, we can tell that this is a psychic contagion in part by how fast it's changing. So every sort of few months, it's new gender identities. Like it's much less common now to say that you're a trans boy. Now you say you're non-binary or gender fluid or a demi-boy. Uh -huh. And you, you it's What's less... What's a demi-boy? Oh, a bit boyish. Don't, I mean, why are you asking me? I mean, <laughs> it's nonsense is what it is. Sorry, I, I, I just, I'm slightly running out of patience. <laughs> it's dreadful. Right. Well, you're going to get questions like this. If you write a book like Trans, oh, no, people are going to come to you for answers. No, so. I wasn't running out of patience with you. It's just like, you know, you just want to roll your eyes. I just, the idea of this being how you spend your teens, inventing micro-identities, it's quite sad. Mm -hmm. It could be a lot more fun than this. It could be a lot more fun. Yeah. Now, despite your frustration, there is someone might call progress legally. As we speak, Mermaids, which is a, a group advising teenagers, has just had their trustee, Dr. Jacob Breslow, resign because he was he spoke at Before You Act conference in 2011, which calls for paedophiles to have the right to live in truth and dignity, and also calls paedophiles minor attracted persons. And having gone on their website this morning, they've closed down their phone lines because of the intolerable abuse, quote, that they've been receiving as a consequence. They have also, they are a group that have enjoyed the support of Prince Harry and Princess Meghan, as well as actress Emma Watson. And of course, there's a legal proceedings at the moment where yes. they have been taking LGB Alliance to court, disputing the LGBA 
being a charity. What's your take on the Mermaids organisation? So Mermaids was set up, oh gosh, more than 20 years ago by some parents as a little self-help group. And it was a good group then. So this is before the trans contagion really got going. And there were just a few dozen children a year seen in the gender clinics. But it's very, a very difficult experience. Like it's very hard to cope with something that hardly anyone's coping with. So they found each other and supported each other. And they were quite sensible. Like they shared good, you know, there's very little research, but what there was, they shared it and they supported each other. And if you look back at the Wayback Machine, you look at their early website, um, you know, they weren't crazy. They mm. were, you know, talking about the reality of sexed bodies. They weren't suggesting that a child who had gender dysphoria thereby was a member of the opposite sex or anything. Everything changed for them when a woman called Susie Green became one of the parents. Um, so Susie has done a TED talk about her experience and her husband's experience with their child, Jackie, who's a boy who was a highly effeminate little boy. And they found it difficult, in particular that a father found it difficult having such an effeminate little boy because he didn't want a gay son. And so they went to family counselling and I don't think Susie was that bothered by it, but the father definitely was. And what they were advised was that they, should, they had to hang together. The two of them had to make a decision and stick with it. And they decided that this little boy was actually a girl. That was the decision and they transitioned Jackie socially meaning changing name, pronouns, letting this child's hair grow long, telling everyone it's a girl, wearing girls' clothes, that sort of thing. And then, you know, puberty approaches. Obviously, that is pretty shocking in terms of homophobic. Yeah. I mean, in the, I know, in the maybe age a lot of it is homophobia. When, when we're, you know, the idea of conversion therapy is yeah. just repugnant now to pretty much everyone, that this... But this is, is conversion therapy. Quite. This, well, is, this is, is a whole other level of conversion yes, therapy. Yes, it is. And now, I'm not saying that all the kids who identify as trans are same-sex attracted. But historically speaking, in the 50 to 70 years that we've seen kids at all being looked at by gender doctors, most of them were. Interesting. Most of them, because there is a strong link, and this is back to your question about gender, there is a strong link between being gender non-conforming and growing up gay. It's by no means 100%. There are plenty of... A link or a correlation? Strong correlation, very strong. Like 20 or 25 times more likely to grow up gay if you're highly, highly gender non-conforming to the extent that the people around you would notice yes. compared to the general population. That said, there are still plenty of sweet little boys who love ballet, who grow up to be straight, mm -hmm. and you know, girls who can't stand frills and want to be climbing trees and love football and so on. But just numbers-wise, there's a strong correlation. Uh -huh. So most of the kids who saw the early gender doctors, there were very few of those kids, but most of them were same-sex attracted when they passed puberty. Uh -huh. And the first studies which tracked the kids but didn't do any interventions, found that almost all those kids stopped saying, I want to be a boy, or I want to be a girl, or I think I really am a girl. They just accepted themselves as gay. Puberty taught them who they were. Mm -hmm. But that process was foreclosed for Jackie Green, who was transitioned at age four, and Susie found, at the time there was, no, there was no transition pathway on the NHS, Susie reached out to American doctors and got puberty blockers from a chap called Norman Spack at the Boston Children's Hospital and blocked Jackie's puberty, I think probably around age 11. And then at age 13 or 14, Jackie was put on oestrogen. And then they flew to Thailand and got Jackie what's called um, gender reassignment surgery, meaning genital surgery, on his 16th birthday. So that was when he was castrated and had a, a neo-vagina created. Mm -hmm. That's all about 13, 14 years ago, I think, maybe a little less. And Susie is now, I think, the chair of Mermaids and has been for a long time. Okay. And that's the pathway that Mermaids promotes. 
Mm-hmm. And so anyone who didn't agree with that pathway is no longer in mermaids. And it's, it's entirely people who believe that this is that, you know, children can be born in the wrong body. You would socially transition a child who was born in the wrong body. You would do the surgery. You would, you know, they, they pushed very hard for that treatment pathway on the NHS and they succeeded in getting it too. Mm-hmm. It was their pressure that really stopped the Tavistock, which is the NHS clinic for gender dysphoric children, that stopped the Tavistock from being so cautious. So mermaids really led the NHS down that path. So what are mermaids then, apart from, as I mentioned, the court case and... and yes. So uh, the court case recent... and this Jacob Breslow guy are the current... Current thing, but, but yeah. what, what, what... So that they're, they're recommending puberty blockers to children? Their path... They recommend this, what they call, gender-affirmative pathway. Okay which really presupposes that if a child says to you, I'm really a boy or I'm really a girl, that that child knows what they're talking about and means it and that it's going to last in such a way that you would really take these steps. Now, in case it's not obvious, these steps sterilise you. They probably mean that you'll have no sex life as well. And we don't know what puberty blockers do to your brain, but you may remember being a teenager. Lots changes in your brain (laughs) in your teens. Like it's the second major developmental sprint after babyhood. Mm-hmm. So just disturbing it is, to say the least, a risky thing to do. So Mermaids has a lot of money now. It became quite a fashionable charity. It got like all these people like Emma Watson and Harry and Meghan supporting it. And it got a half a million over a few years from the National Lottery. And it grew to be quite a large charity. I mean, not an enormous charity, but like, you know, quite sizable. And they produce teaching materials and they train teachers and... And there's a notorious video of a mermaid's trainer teaching teachers using what they called a gender scale, which had a picture of a Barbie doll and a picture of a G.I. Joe. And in between these sort of mannequins morphing from pink with pigtails to a big butch thing and black, you know, in between the two and telling teachers they should encourage children to place themselves in this gender scale and work out who they were, Mm. which can only mean that you look at it and if you're not Barbie or G.I. Joe, you wonder, are you really a boy or a girl? Do we know how far into, into schools that this got? Well, from mermaids particularly, I think they trained in several dozen schools and that went out. But there's a set of these charities, there's a constellation of them, Gendered Intelligence, The Proud Trust, Stonewall do this sort of stuff too, mermaids. This is the sort of thing that goes into all schools now. Mm-hmm. Lots of councils got help in drawing up their trans inclusion policies and their RSE lessons from people like mermaids. Mm-hmm. So it's been incredibly influential. So this, this is the stuff that's being taught to children, and then we wonder why there's an increase in gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And we're telling children, if you don't feel like Barbie or G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. you might have gender dysphoria, you might be trans. Like, we actually suggest selling trans identities to children in schools. So mermaids has this self-mythology that they are very under pressure from transphobes. And of course, they would think I'm a transphobe. Mm-hmm. But the first time I ever looked for mermaids on Twitter, I was already blocked. And that was before I wrote my book. So they, they don't accept any challenge. They don't talk to journalists who aren't totally uncritical. Uh-huh. And they've always been like that. They, they're like an organisation under siege. That's not good for transparency. And it's not the way that you should run a charity. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not the way you should run a children's charity. You should be using, you know, absolute maximum transparency in that sort of very responsible situation with very vulnerable beneficiaries for your charity. So this so th- Jacob Breslow guy, yeah. I mean... He hasn't been a a trustee for very long, but I mean, the way it's been reported is as if, you know, back in 2011, he made this lapse. Since then, he's been a student at um, LSE and done a PhD, and now he's one of the people running. He's an associate professor there, and he runs courses. And the courses are all about queer, queering childhood. Mm -hmm. So he supervised a thesis last year in which a student gave a presentation of this paper. 
and it was saying, you know, TERFs, that's trans-exclusionary radical feminists, people like me who think sex is real. You know, TERFs are scared of trans people. Well, I fucking hope they're scared. I'll hold the knife to your throat and whisper in your ear. Are you scared? I sure hope so. Like this sort of stuff. This is Jacob Breslow's work. Mm. And the queering the pedagogy stuff is this idea that childhood is like male or female, a socially constructed category, which it kind of is, but mm. only kind of. Mm -hmm. Same way that man and woman are kind of socially constructed on top of a substrate that's real. But the queer theorists think it's all just words. It's mm -hmm. all just the superficial stuff. And so what his thesis is about, and he's writing a book at the moment, and it has their queer children as one of the chapters, or queer childhood. It's all about disrupting this idea of childhood innocence, thinking about the boundaries between children and adults. And you can see how, I'm trying to pick my words very carefully, you can see how this could be done with good intentions, but you can also see how it could be done with very nefarious intentions. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is absolutely where the paedophiles of today are, is mm -hmm. in this queer pedagogy, queering childhood stuff. And not just today, because and you write about this in your book, there's a history of a yeah. link between paedophile groups, or I don't know quite how to, what language to use, but sympathetic. Pro-paedophile, pro I guess. I mean, pro-lowering the age of consent, pro-conceptualising of paedophilia as a sexual orientation, which, by the way, it might be, but that doesn't mean it's right. Mm -hmm. Like, it could be the world's most unfortunate sexual orientation and that it's a sexual orientation you're not allowed to act on. But that's probably where they're coming from. It in, is, in terms of... it is. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with people who are born with conditions or urges that mean they can't you know, be comfortably accommodated in society because I'm a massive bleeding heart. I know they don't think I am, but I am. <laughs> so I'm really, really sorry for somebody who might feel that they have urges that are totally unacceptable. I'm starting to believe that we can't even study this because as soon as we try and study this, the bloody paedophiles come in. Mm -hmm. Like you think to yourself, like, let's find out, are some people born paedophile? What can you do? How do you work with them? Can I you mean, cure them? And then the blooming paedophiles come in. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much sympathy I have. For example, a man might have an urge to kiss a very beautiful woman, yeah. but there's no sympathy. I don't know, oh, poor guy can't kiss her. No, don't <laughs> kiss her. I so... told you I'm a bleeding heart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but in, no, seriously, just for a moment, let's take the maximalist position here. Suppose you just don't find adults of either sex at all attractive, but you think the children are really sexy. You're never going to have a decent sex life and you're never going to form a proper relationship or else you're going to be doing something unconscionable. That's your choice. Mm. I think that's a bit sad. And I'd like to know more about it. Can we help these people? Are they born that way? Whatever. But it seems to me that every time we try to study this, in come paedophiles and start saying, well, if people are born this way, it's another sexuality, mm -hmm. minor attracted persons, blah, blah, blah. So to say the least, Jacob Breslow's work should have suggested that at no point was he remotely suitable to work with a children's charity. Agreed. To say the least. But also, I would like to know whether mermaids reached out to him because that's how it normally works for charities. It's mm -hmm. not like you put an ad in the paper and mm -hmm. say, we want, we want trustees. You reach out to people. I think they liked his quite violent rhetoric towards TERFs. He also wrote an incredibly poor analysis of my friend and colleague Maya Forstatter's legal case, in which he got the law completely wrong. But, you know, they like that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they think that Maya's a massive bigot like me. And... So, yeah, so, so this is just the latest. This is absolutely not like an ordinary, properly run charity that's just made one little mistake about somebody who was at a dodgy conference in 2011. Uh -huh. This is indicative of a worldview. Right. So my earlier point was that things seem to be, at least in Britain, making a turn legally for what you might call the better with mermaids coming apart. You mentioned Maya Forstatter 
There's, of course, Alison Bailey, the, the barrister, who is a co-founder of the LGB Alliance, who have both been proved under the Equality Act 2010 in court that their beliefs, gender-critical beliefs, are protected beliefs. So it seems now legally, and of course, the Tavistock, which mermaids were influencing, had been told this summer to close by spring next year. Tavistock, which perhaps you can t- talk about in more detail, but they have been advising children to get surgery without parental consent, puberty blockers, and perhaps much more. But it would seem, despite these things that happened, that things are, are perhaps turning for the better. Are you hopeful? Yes, I think so. I mean, I will just say a little bit about the Tavistock. Um, the Tavistock doesn't actually do things over parental consent. It has fairly strict rules about when when you would take puberty blockers, when you would take cross-sex hormones, when you would have surgery. It does have age limits for these things. Uh. And it has never it has never acted without parental consent because gender dysphoria, it's so ineffable, you know? Like, there are no criteria for it that aren't things that can be seen outside, like that the child is miserable, that the child, you know, persistently, you know, claims that they are members of the opposite sex. What it was doing was basically being quite unquestioning and very, very patchy, by the way, like incredibly different. Like, it had this big increase in numbers. You know, some therapists were better than others. But if a parent said no... I'm not having my child go down this pathway the Tavistock and not push for them to. Mm-hmm. The Good Law Project, Jolian Morm's project, let's say, that took a court case to establish that the children could consent without parental consent. Mm-hmm. And that was established in court, actually. But I don't think the Tavistock was doing it. They certainly didn't want right. to. Okay. But so I would say that it was a poorly run, poorly managed, overburdened service that had allowed itself to be pushed around by activists. It is being closed down because a review is being done of gender services in the NHS for children by Hilary Cass, who's a very eminent paediatrician. And she looked at it in her interim report, which was published this year. The final report is due out next year. And she said that this service was not safe. Mm-hmm. Too overburdened, too long waiting lists, very patchy and poor treatment, too little consideration of other problems. And she said that um, gender shouldn't be hived off like this. Like this one specialist clinic to see gender dysphoric kids only makes sense when you have a few dozen of them a year or maximum a couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. Because then you would, you know, you'd need the specialty, would have to be in one place. Mm-hmm. But now that, you know, there's half a dozen kids in every class in every school saying that they're trans, I exaggerate only very slightly. Um, well, how much are you exaggerating that? I think in about six months' time I won't be exaggerating at all. Mm. There's this incredible increase. This, this autumn when kids went back to school, so many of them have identified as trans. We're hearing from parents all the time saying what happened, you know, letter home from the school mm-hmm. or indeed just discovered by chance. But that's another story. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so when it's when it's everywhere, you would just deal with it in, in with your, all your other mental health services, which is basically what Hilary Cass has recommended, mm-hmm. that there would be regional centres and that it would be dealt with alongside other issues because the people that they've been seeing at the Tavistock, the children they've been seeing at the Tavistock, they're very high degree of comorbidities. That means other issues. Yes. So self-harm, autistic spectrum, depression, eating disorders, family traumas, child abuse, mm-hmm. and a very large number of them same-sex attracted, as I said. You know, so, so saying that you're just going to look at their gender makes no sense. Like if a kid comes into you and they've been cutting and they're clearly unwell mm-hmm. and you get the feeling that this child is depressed, you would want to do a full workup, really. And mm-hmm. the gender issues, maybe you should just park them. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happens in a gender clinic. Yeah. So that was her recommendation. 
Uh-huh. Can you tell me about the Equality Act 2010? Because it seems that it's a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, it's been used to exonerate Alison Bailey, as I mentioned, and Maya Forstater, your friend. But on the other hand, I think it was Cardiff University that allows transgender or transsexuals to use the toilet of their choosing and they cite the Equality Act 2010 because yeah. it's a protected belief. So what, what's going on there? It's a bit of a jumble. I'm basically a fan of the Equality Act, which puts me at odds with the current government, with whom I'm more in sympathy in general on trans issues than I would be with Labour or the Lib Dems. So the way the Equality Act works is it was passed in 2010 as a sort of a tidying up, a big overarching law that brought together about 100 pieces of legislation and case law that had developed over the previous decades. There are nine protected characteristics, and what that basically means is they're things that you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of, except when you need to. I know that sounds odd, but what I mean, if I take an example, let's see, age. You can't discriminate on age means that you couldn't have a job ad that says, you know, young barkeeper required. But you are allowed to, for example, have a playground that says under 10s only, because the kids can't play if the teenagers are hanging out on the swings. Mm -hmm. So there's lawful and unlawful discrimination. Mm-hmm. And that's the framework, that's the way you think about it. Sex is one of the protected characteristics, and it means male or female. Mm-hmm. So you can't advertise and say, we want a secretary, female only. Or, you know, sex discrimination is obviously a big one, and so is race discrimination. Mm-hmm. But you could, for example, do a programme in an inner city school that, you know, you identified that it was the white working class boys who were behind in reading, so you do a special course for them because it's in, it's in the service of more equality, basically. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the Equality Act is quite a good way to look at these things, but it's so badly miscited and never more than when it comes to sex, because another of the protected characteristics is gender reassignment. Mm-hmm. It's an odd definition. It's something like proposing to undergo, undergoing or having undergone any process of assign, reassigning your sex characteristics. That's not quite right, but it's something like that. It's anybody who thinks themselves as trans. Very vague, no criteria, you don't have to be in the care of a doctor or anything like that. And if it's just, well, you can't discriminate against them, I'm all for that. You know, some bloke turns up at work in a skirt and, you know, lipstick and nail polish and, you know, says he's changed his name to Susie. I don't want him to be fired. Mm-hmm. I also don't want him using the women's toilets because he's not a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's the mistake. A lot of these places think that if you have the protected characteristic of gender reassignment, your sex has changed. But actually, they're two separate characteristics. So Cardiff University is just making a mistake there, as are all the other universities, because that's not unusual. And the reason they're making that mistake is because of the lobby groups like Stonewall and Mermaids that have systematically misrepresented the Equality Act in their training materials, in their schemes for employers. You know, they have these very influential schemes the Workplace Equality Index from um, Stonewall. What's that? You sign up and they come and they mark you, basically. And then you get a badge and it says, like, we're great. Right. And one of the ways that you'll show you're great is by letting the men use the women's toilets if they say they're women. I'm not exaggerating. That is Mm -hmm. one of the ways they'll say you're great. Mm -hmm. They want you to get rid of gendered language, you know, to your maternity policy would say, you know, parents or birthing parents. Yeah. So sometimes it's worth spelling out what might be a potentially obvious to me and you but just on the toilets thing yeah this is something that for example i was when i was touring at once in america in north carolina it was the toilet debate oh that was going on then yeah the bathroom bills the bathroom bills yeah and i was in i think concord 
and it had all been blown up and several artists who were playing that week, yeah. including Bruce Springsteen, yes. all had to make statements or do something to show, to signal their sign. It was a, it was a bloody nightmare yes. time to, yes. to be there. But just in case it wasn't already obvious, what is wrong with having a trans woman in a toilet for women? I mean, the language is straight away misleading, isn't it? You know, when, people, when you say trans woman, you think it's some sort of woman, but it's men. And it could be a man who looks like you. I mean, there are no criteria. Mm-hmm. And even if it's a man who's dressed in the women's clothes and so on, I'm not blind. I can see who's a man. Mm-hmm. And the reason we have single-sex toilets, I mean, it's three reasons, safety, dignity, and privacy. Mm-hmm. I was in um, Edinburgh yesterday uh, for the protests against the Scottish government's plans to introduce gender self-ID. And afterwards, we went for a meal, a lunch. And it was in a pub, and the pub had mixed-sex toilets. It just had one toilet. You went in and, okay, so each of the individual cubicles did have a full-length door and the sink was inside, so you think like it's a single facility, but it's all behind one door and it comes out onto a narrow corridor with, I think it was eight doors opening onto it. Do you remember how leery men can get in pubs? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Do you know what men do to women in pubs? Do you know what teenage girls have to put up with? This is not safe. Mm. This is not safe. A pub that does this sort of toilet design is putting women in danger. Women go to toilets to get away from men sometimes. And then there's just the privacy issue, you know, like if your period has started and, you know, you've bled or something, you have to deal with it. And miscarriages commonly happen in women's toilets. Mm -hmm. They don't tend to wait until you're at home, you know. And then there are women who have special or particular needs. So, um, you're disabled, you need to be helped into the toilet. You don't want to do that. Like, like I imagine a woman who needs somebody to help her, an elderly woman, say, in this space. If it's a women's toilet, you can leave the door open to the individual cubicle and other women will be really nice about it. Mm-hmm. And they'll just give you a bit of privacy. There was no possibility of that here. Mm-hmm. And what about a Muslim woman or an Orthodox Jewish woman who can't do certain things in too close proximity with men? Mm-hmm. You know, women take longer to use the toilets. We need about half as many toilets again as men do. Toilets sounds like such a trivial thing, and it's because healthy young people like you, Winston, who do podcasting and who do journalism and so on, they imagine themselves. They haven't been afraid. They're mostly men. They haven't been afraid in a pub. They haven't had to go and hide in the toilet and get their phone out and ring a friend to come and get them because there's some weird guy outside. Mm-hmm. You know, men will follow women into toilets if they can when they try and get away from them in pubs. Mm -hmm. And now they've got an excuse. That man, you can't challenge him because he could say he's a woman. Mm -hmm. So the toilets seems like, you know, you could be quite relaxed about toilets, but you wouldn't be relaxed maybe about, say, changing rooms or rape crisis centres or whatever. No, toilets are really important. People Mm -hmm. don't go out unless they can use safe, dignified, clean, private spaces. Oh, by the way, men piss on the seat. Mm -hmm. I'd really, really, really rather I wasn't using a toilet that lots of men have been using all day. On behalf of all men. I apologise. Yeah. That is disgusting. It is disgusting, but lots we of men do. Yes. Men piss in the sinks as well if there's no toilet free. You know this. You're not I wrong. saw your face. Yeah. I don't want this happening in my toilets. So sometimes people say this thing about but, but, you know, there's a gender neutral toilet at home. But that's not used by several hundred men in a day that I don't know. But where the trans activists would take umbrage of this argument, I think, is that they would say that this is accusing transgenders of behaving like this. And they said, yeah. no, a transgender wouldn't behave like this. And, and, yeah. and so... Well, a trans, a trans woman is just a man. There's no other criterion for being a trans woman than that you're male. Mm-hmm. You know, there used to be. Mm-hmm. 
It used to be that you would not consider using the women's toilets unless you were under the care of a gender doctor. Like in the 1980s and 90s, the doctors would give you a letter in case women challenged you in the toilet. Mm -hmm. And you would get out this letter that says, aha, you know, I'm being seen by a doctor and I'm in the process of transitioning. I don't think women liked that very much, mm -hmm. but it was a very tiny number of people. And women still felt free to say, you shouldn't be here. Yeah. Now you can't, you can't challenge anyone. Like there are signs that you see sometimes in toilets that say all genders, or they say, does someone here look like they shouldn't be here? You don't know what gender someone is by looking, don't ask. Mm -hmm. So it just means any man. I'm not saying anything particular about men who identify as trans, I'm just saying they're men. Mm -hmm. That's all. So you mentioned that you're in Scotland. Yep. Tell me about the Scottish Gender Bill. Yeah, okay, so there are two relevant laws for the question of who's trans. One of them we've talked about, the Equality Act, that doesn't really set criteria, it's just if you say you're trans you are. There's a much, much, much tinier group of people who've used the terms of an earlier law, the Gender Recognition Act of 2004, to change the sex that's on their birth certificate. Mm -hmm. To do that, you have to go to a doctor, get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, get a signature from another doctor, fill in a form, pay five pounds, and that's considered by a panel. Mm -hmm. Basically approve it pretty much always. But then you get a thing called a gender recognition certificate, and that allows you to get a new birth cert that says the sex that you're not on it. There's no particular criteria for surgery or anything like that. So if you're imagining, like I think people listening to debates about trans issues, they often imagine somebody who's basically indistinguishable from a member of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. But like, no, you could just look like anyone else of your sex. But now your birth cert says you're the opposite sex. On the other hand, it's a bit bureaucratic, so not many people do it. Mm -hmm. Scotland plans to make it very easy that you would just, oh, sorry, you have to wait two years as well. I forgot that. That's the important criterion here. Wait two years to... So between applying and getting your gender recognition certificate takes two years here. At, at the moment. moment. At the moment. Uh -huh. Scotland wants to bring that down to three months. It wants to basically make it just that you say you want it. No doctor, no diagnosis of gender dysphoria, as low as age 16. Mm -hmm. So basically they're just opening up to a much, much, much larger group of people with no criteria or checks of any sort. Like you could, be, you could, you could actually be a rapist and apply for this. Yes. And then you would legally count in more situations as a member of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're imprisoned, it would be rather hard to send you to a prison that's for your own sex. Yes. You'd go to a prison for the opposite sex. Well, the crux of this, which is an argument you make very well in your book, and it's related to prisons, I'd like to ask you about that, but it's actually about the propensity for violence that men have as opposed to women. And that, and that is the problem with the toilet bill, that's the, the problem with what's going on in prisons. Now, in America, if I'm not mistaken, in New Jersey, a man identifying as a woman just raped and impregnated two women in a prison. And uh, this was earlier this year. But, and you make the case in your book, and this is, I'm going to read your book if you don't mind, because I think this is... Fine by well me. Argued. The far greater number of male prisoners and their far greater propensity for violent and sexual crimes mean that not very many males will need to seek transfer before women's prisons are overwhelmed. If the UK prison's inspectorate is right and 2% of male prisoners identify as women, that is a figure greater than half the total number of female prisoners. And if trans women's offending pattern is male typical and the share imprisoned for sex crimes is five times as high as for women, you arrive at a startling conclusion. Of all the sex offenders behind bars in both men's and women's prisons, who identify as women, well over two-thirds are male. It, it's hard to keep track of, so I'll sort of, st I'll, I'll talk through the numbers. 
There are about 88,000 people in prison in England and Wales. 4,000 are women. So 84,000 in one bucket and 4,000 in the other. Mm -hmm. Now of those 84,000, nearly 20% are in for a sex crime. Of the 4,000, only 4%. Mm. So it's five times and then five times again is mm -hmm. the difference, okay, if you're looking just at sex crimes. And then if you analyse the sex crimes, most of the sex crimes the men commit are rape, sexual assault, whatever. The women, it's mostly accessory or um, non-contact crimes. So that's things like helping with child porn. Mm -hmm. Obviously a very bad crime, but not making you a risk to other actual adults around you. Mm -hmm. So there's only really a handful of women who commit violent sex offences, like on the person each mm -hmm. year. And there are ten, there's what, about 20,000 men. And that's just the ones we know about. Like of the other men in jail, lots of them will be sex criminals as well, mm -hmm. because rape is very underreported and so on. So you've tens and tens of thousands of men and a couple of hundred women mm -hmm. who commit these sorts of crimes. Then on top of that, you've got the fact that men are much stronger mm -hmm. than women. The, the differences are large, especially in the upper body. And then you would think that you're going to allow one of these men to say he's a woman and put him in the women's prisons. And the violence difference between men and women and the types of crimes difference means the prisons are different as well. There are no high security women's prisons. There's mm -hmm. only medium and low security. And they're generally much more home-like places. Like the problem, I, uh, one, one of the women I know in Scotland, a woman called Rona Hotchkiss, she's a retired prison governor. The problems in a women's prison are the women are um, self-harming, depressed. Almost all of them have been victims of domestic violence, rape. They're in for prostitution, non-payment of fines, shoplifting. They're people with very chaotic and miserable lives. And they're mm. very, very often people whose lives have been destroyed by their relations with men. Mm. I'm not saying it's all the men's fault, I'm just saying that's the way it is. They mm -hmm. had shitty boyfriends, they had a pimp, you know, they ran away from some bloke who was hitting them and life went downhill after that. That's women's prisons, they're very sad places. You don't tend to have to worry about fights or anything like that. You tend to have to be watching out for their health, their mental mm -hmm. health. Mm -hmm. Men's prisons are very different, like, you know, there's those 20% who committed sex crimes, but then there's a lot of other violent crimes as well. There's a lot of violence in men's prisons. They're just really very different places. And then you get these men who say they're women. I mean, we, you know, we don't have good data on these things, but of the trans-identifying male prisoners that we know about, half of them have committed sex crimes. Not 20%, half. Mm. So they seem to be... Either they're taking you know, advantage of a stupid policy, or there's something about being a trans woman that makes you more likely than other men to be a sex criminal. Right. I don't think it's the second one. I think it's the first. Mm -hmm. I think it's the lax policy. So no, no men belong in women's prisons, they really don't. So then you ask yourself, well, they're very vulnerable, aren't they? Well... Who's vulnerable? The trans women in, in men's jails. Mm -hmm. To the extent that they're feminine presenting, they certainly are. But that's true, for example, for gay male prisoners. You know, there's a lot of men in prisons who have specific vulnerability. You know, they're gang members and other gang are against them. They, if they're in for sex crimes, they're very vulnerable, especially against children. If they're police officers, they're very vulnerable. If they're young, they're very vulnerable. If they're gay, they're very vulnerable. There's a lot of vulnerable men in men's prisons who have to be managed and looked after and protected from the other prisoners. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, trans women are one of those groups. Yeah. They're vulnerable, but they do not belong in a women's jail. We do not parachute out gang members or people. So a separate or... jail for trans women? I would say a separate wing. Separate wing? Yeah, yeah. Where are we at with gender self-ID? Here it's been knocked on the head, really, in England. Mm -hmm. In Scotland, it's going full steam ahead. Um, uh -huh. do you, do you and, that's, and that's what the Scottish... Yes, that's what the protest that I was at yesterday was about. Um, I don't know how much you know about Scottish politics, but it, it basically all just revolves around independence. 
So you've, more than 90% of Scottish people choose their party first and foremost on what they call the constitutional question. Okay. If you're pro-independence, you vote SNP. If you're against, you split your vote between Labour and Tory. Mm-hmm. So that's why the SNP have basically a permanent lock on power. Mm-hmm. Makes them a very bad government. Mm-hmm. Things are run very badly in Scotland. Their health outcomes are terrible. Their education outcomes are terrible. Their spending is high and very poor quality. General public services, doesn't matter. They're mm-hmm. going to be elected forevermore. So it's quite depressing, really, that you know there's no accountability. And for reasons that I really can't speculate on, Nicola Sturgeon has decided that gender self-ID is going to be her big legacy. Right. She's become convinced that, that it's... Um, you know, that it's a liberal and, you know, it's the next big civil rights battle to allow men to say they're women. Uh-huh. So anyway, we, we all tipped up outside Holyrood yesterday with banners and, you know, good sound system. And there were some very, very stirring speeches, you know, about there's a man running the um, Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre, a man who says he's a woman, you know, and has said that women who don't very much like the idea of men in women's rape crisis centres, that we're bigots and that bigots get raped too. Um, we need to re-educate ourselves about our trauma, not use the trauma as an excuse. Mm-hmm. There are men in women's prisons in, in Scotland more than elsewhere in the UK. You know, there's, there's just lots, there were lots of quite sad stories. And I mean, it was a very stirring day, but it's hard to see changing her mind. Mm. She can do what she likes. Being Irish, what's, what's going on in Ireland on the issue? What's, what's well, we foolishly, different there? Yeah, we foolishly brought in self-ID without any debate in 2015. Mm-hmm. So we've, we had three big, what were presented as civil rights issues in short succession, and I think two of them were, and one of them was fraudulent. The other two were gay marriage and a more liberal abortion law. So those two had big public debates. Both of them required um, referendums to change our constitution, which had, already, which had described abortion you know, as not allowable at all, and marriages between a man and woman. So we had to change our constitution and that required a referendum mm-hmm. and there was a lot of public debate and there were model laws and it was done really well it was just that was democracy in action mm-hmm. but i don't think the founding fathers of ireland in 1920 whatever were thinking that ever we would think that men could be women or women men and so they didn't write that down mm-hmm. so it was easy to just pass it and yeah. for reasons i won't go into for legal reasons we needed to allow some recognition of trans identities to do with the european court of human rights but it didn't have to be done the way it was. Mm-hmm. Like the law just kept getting watered down and watered down. And then finally, the law that went through in 2015 says you fill in a form online, you make a sworn statement in front of a notary, send off your birth cert, and they'll send you back another one that says the opposite sex on it. That's it. Right. Can I bring up what's probably the most controversial part of your book? Oh, um, I'm, I'm interested to know what you think is the most controversial you probably part. Won't find it controversial. <laughs> But I can certainly imagine this paragraph okay. riling the trans activists more than any other. Interesting. Um, mainstream trans activism are the desires of rich, powerful males who want to be classed as women. <sighs> Everything I have written about, the harm to children's bodies, the loss of women's privacy, the destruction of women's sports and the perversion of language is collateral damage. damage. Have you had any pushback for no, that? No, no, no. I mean, that's that's actually flown under the many lies that are told about me, so I'm interested you think it's so controversial. <laughs> I think you might be reading, the, well, rest okay, of, might be reading the, you... the rest of the book in good faith, unlike many of my critics. Right. <laughs> well, why that's controversial, though, is, is because I suppose it doesn't really allow for the... Well, you've already explained your, your sympathy for people with gender dysphoria and stuff, but it, it sort of writes off the whole movement, yeah. really, as something nefarious, rather than 
really accepting there's there's a serious issue at, at the core of people who don't feel comfortable in their in their bodies. So I absolutely, and the book does not write off the issue that there are people who are uncomfortable in their bodies. It writes off the idea that that makes them members of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. Those two things are just not logically connected. Uh-huh. Like there's just no reason to say this man who wishes he wasn't a man thereby is a woman. We don't mm-hmm. say that about anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to be a doctor or an airline pilot. Mm-hmm. We would never look at a black person or a black child who says, you know, racism is awful. I wish I was white, and then say, well, you're trans white. Mm-hmm. Like it's incredibly offensive, actually. So the movement, the movement that I'm talking about there, that that paragraph is about the movement for gender self ID in law. The process whereby a male person gets a piece of paper that says he's female or a female person gets a piece of paper that says she's male. Mm-hmm. That's a really recent development and it's not really a solution to gender dysphoria. Like gender dysphoria could be solved perhaps by getting used to the body you're in, mm-hmm. for example. So that movement, like why, why does anyone want to count legally as a member of the opposite sex? Like the more I think about it, the more I think it's extraordinary that that has been pushed as a civil right. Like, mm. Why is it a civil right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing else that I'm not that I can get a piece of paper saying I am. And it turns, I mean, in my opinion, you know, there are many sort of strands to this, you know, like all big shifts, you could say it's a perfect storm, like there's, you know, 10 or 12 different bits to it, but it would not have happened if there weren't some rich, powerful men who wanted more than anything else to be women. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by that paragraph, that without that core, this would not have coalesced. Mm-hmm. Men and their sex drives, it turns out, is a pretty powerful shaper of the world. Mm-hmm. Men do all sorts of things for their sex drives. It's wonderful things, art, conquering countries, yeah. etc. But they do terrible things there, as well. There is a sexual side to some of this. Is it called autogynophilia? Uh, autogynophilia, yes. Controversial label. I mean, I think it's unarguable if you look in good faith at the evidence that there are some men for whom the idea of being a woman is a sexual mm-hmm. idea. So even if we don't go any further than that, even if we don't say that it's actually a lot of the trans women, for some of them it clearly is. So autogynophilia, just for someone who doesn't know. It's the Greek for love of oneself as a woman. Mm -hmm. And it's posited as indeed another um, sexuality by Mm -hmm. the people who researched it. It's the sexuality that what turns a man on is is the woman inside, is his imagined self as a woman. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not saying all trans women fall in this category, but some do, mm-hmm. and some will tell you they do, mm-hmm. and they've written about it. Yes. So we're sure that there are men like this. Yes. You know, when you start to think that some of the men who want to use women's spaces want to use them because they find that sexy, you're like, oh, you know, why should women have to put up with that again? Yeah. Like, I can see why the man wants to do it. I can't see why we're meant to go along with it. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, there is absolutely a sexual part to it. Yeah. Um, so if I can tie this all together now by going back to my original opening words where I describe the state of the creative industries and how the trans has been such, it's been the number one device yes. of issues. It's the issue. On, on this show, I, I've had James Dreyfus, the actor star of Thin Blue Line and Gimme, Gimme, Gimme and Notting Hill, speak about getting scrubbed off Doctor Who as the master for having gender critical opinions. I've had Rosie Kay, the dancer choreographer, describe how she was forced to resign from the company that she built and to to form a new one. And I wondered whether you might have insight, and this is perhaps a difficult question, is why has this specific topic become as fervent and febrile and totemic and and huge as it it has? I think it's because of what I just said, that it's about people 
gaining recognition, legal or societal, for exactly what they're not. So at its heart is a lie. There's the lie that a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man or a child can change sex. And, you know, as, as I think you know, my PhD is in mathematics. I was a, an academic before I became a journalist. And that's part of why I think I recognised this as all so strange at first, in that, you know, I'm used to logical arguments and I'm used to theorems where every step follows on from the previous line. And I see that as introducing zero equals one into your mathematical universe. Mm -hmm. So you probably, I don't know how much you like maths at school, but you probably remember that you could do the same thing to both sides of an equation and it would still be true. Mm -hmm. So if you added four to both sides, that was fine. If you divided both sides by two, that was fine, yeah? Mm -hmm. Now suppose you've got one lie, zero equals one, okay? You could add zero to one side of the equation and one to the other, and you've got another lie. Mm -hmm. Then you double it and you've got another lie again. You could do it twice, you get a different lie. Mm -hmm. The whole thing collapses. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine some crazy mathematician who says there's this whole world that's all mathematical and it's all interconnected, but just over here, just there, I'm just going to allow zero to be one. It propagates. Mm. It starts to ruin all the other theorems. And if you're very attached to that lie, mm. that one over there, you're going to have to start getting very angry with people who notice. Mm. You're going to have to say to them, no, it's not propagating, it's just that. That has no influence on anything else. But yeah, it does. This so is cognitive dissonance, isn't it? It's when you... Believe two different things and different bits of your brain. You're right. But different bits of your brain. And to actually confront that yeah. difference means perhaps unpicking your entire yeah. understanding of the, the world, world which, which can be a very painful Or you don't confront do. it. You just tell the other person to shut up. A much easier option. Much easier option. So if you're quite attached to this thing here, which you might be for reasons that, you know, it's, it's, it's psychologically very important to you, but loads of people who are very supportive of trans ideology have no particular skin in this game. Mm -hmm. They've just decided that this is the latest virtue signal, it's the latest way to be a good person. Mm -hmm. They might be very attached to the idea of themselves as somebody who, back in the day, would have been, you know, part of the civil rights movement, would have been for fighting for women's suffrage, would have, you know, been really campaigning for gay marriage, but those things are done. Mm -hmm. You want something to do, so you become quite attached to this. And then anyone who says to you, but look, you know, if you allow men to be women over here, you're going to have rapists in women's jails over there. Mm -hmm. You're going yeah, to ruin women's sports. Mm -hmm. All these different bits where your, your, your one lie play out into bigger lies and propagate through a system, you get very angry yeah. and you must silence people. It's the only way to maintain the lie is to make it impossible for anyone to talk about it. Yeah. That's why it's totalitarian. You have to control the language, you have to keep people silent, you have to cancel anyone who does any, says anything about it in order that other people are too scared to speak about it. That's why, because it's a lie. Mm -hmm. Well, if I can finish on a personal question then, have you been cancelled because you are now very public facing? I, I said before we started speaking that having read read uh, widely on, on this particular topic, I would recommend your book, Trans, as the perfect starting place, pretty much authoritative on issues, certainly in Britain, uh, for people who wanted to, uh, an entry point. And um, I wondered, now that you're so public in your stance as gender critical, if you've been cancelled and what pushback uh, you've had? I mean, this word cancelled kind of isn't very well defined, is it? So oh, I'll just answer what the response has been. So I, I didn't know it was going to be so controversial when I found it. So I was already quite a long way in before I realised that I was putting my career at risk. But I was lucky and the editor of The Economist is not a coward. 
and I don't think she even agreed with me at first. What's her name? Uh, Zanny Minton Beddows. Zanny mm. doesn't like bullies and she does like free speech and mm. she does not like people telling her what she should put in her paper. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be enough, even though she didn't really agree with me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't lose my job. Um, I'm not actually working at The Economist at the moment. I'm on a leave of absence. I have to decide what to do when that year ends. Mm-hmm. I'm working with Sex Matters at the moment as a campaign group. Who are they? Sort of a startup um, non-profit that's working towards charitable status. And Maya Forstatter that I mentioned, who lost her job for saying sex is real at a think tank. I still boggle when I say that sentence. Um, yeah. She's uh, the executive director and one of the founders. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a bunch of lawyers, basically, uh, looking at the way that we deal with sex in law and everyday life. So I'm working there now with them at the moment. I mean, I think it's the most interesting thing I've ever done. I guess because I don't have skin in this game, I don't care what people say. I don't have a trans child, I'm not trans-identified, you know, I'm earning a living that they can't get at. Mm-hmm. Certainly people tried. Certainly people have tried, you know, to get me unpublished, to go after anyone who's connected with me, you know. And you've had problems in America being published? Yeah, I mean, the book didn't get picked up by any American publisher, though kindly Simon and Schuster distributed it. And the feedback was very much that people thought it would sell, but that they didn't want the grief inside the office. Mm-hmm. I didn't get uh, anyone to... That's an interesting specific feedback, because yeah. the more obvious critique would be that it's pretty British-specific to British law, not exclusively. Yeah. And so actually to an American audience, that might be harder. But well, if the actual criticism is, no, we yeah. want pushback from the young people in the business, or, you know, that's, that's a separate issue. So, but this is what happens in publishing. Publishers are all cowards. Well, nearly all cowards. My publisher's lovely. Uh, they... Careful. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, it, it, it's funny, it's addictive saying what you think it turns out. <laughs> it's so enjoyable being honest. Yeah. Like, I wrote it to be quite international. Like, I went to Canada, I went to the US, I, di- I, I grounded different bits of it in different countries. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, um, the sports stuff in one place, the employment stuff in another, the school stuff in another, the bathroom stuff in another. So it could have sold in America. Americans are very parochial in their publishing industry, though. So maybe it's just that. But the feedback was, no, for some, from some of them, no, this will sell, but too much grief inside the office. Mm-hmm. There's no one book from a first-time author mm. that's worth that grief. Mm-hmm. Like if it's Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. or J.K. Rowling, you tell the kids to shut up. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get a publisher. Um, I didn't get anyone pick up the audiobook for the same reason. Mm-hmm. There are about 10 companies that produce audiobooks in this country and not one of them was willing to do it. Mm-hmm. So my son recorded it in the understairs off a um, little cupboard where the washing okay. machine is. Huh. We, hung, we hung duvets around. He's a sound engineer. So he came home for a week and he recorded me doing it there. And it's the one and only uh, audiobook that's been put out by my print publishers. Great. So we, we got it out there anyway. Well, well done. done. Well, uh, Helen Joyce, thank you so much for your time. I recommend your book, Trans, to readers. And sure, they'll find that conversation fascinating. And I wish you all the best as you continue your journey, speaking your mind freely, fearlessly. <laughs> and I look forward to enjoying what you have to say next. Thank you very much for having me in.